All right. So today we are continuing our series, Encounters with Jesus, right where we left off in Luke 7. So if you want to turn to Luke 7, we can do that now. We can do that later. But just a reminder, last week we saw that uh, Jesus' interaction with the Roman centurion. We saw that Jesus came to this Roman centurion and healed his servant, not because the Roman centurion was worthy of Jesus, but because this soldier recognized the ultimate worthiness of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to be looking at another story in Luke 7, someone on the exact opposite of the social spectrum. This is the widow of Nain, a widowed woman, the lowest totem on the totem pole. All right, and today we're going to see that in this interaction with the widowed woman, that Jesus is compassionate. We have to understand that that is a crucial part of Jesus' character, his compassion. And so through this story, we're going to see his compassion, how he actually is moved and feels for this woman, and then we're going to see how that moves him into action. He doesn't just sit and feel those emotions, he actually does move towards her and help her. So let's look at Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. Let me get there. All right. Please join me. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew, as he drew near to the gate of the town, Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding countryside. All right. So, here we have this crowd. This crowd who is walking with Jesus. Jesus is at the front. They're probably joyful questioning Jesus, asking questions, interacting with him, and they are going up to this town of Nain. But as they are approaching that town, a second crowd begins to come out of the gate. This is a funeral procession. And if we want to understand what funerals were like, this is not an American funeral procession with American grief. These aren't people with stiff upper lips who have to kind of keep it all together so that no one sees them sad. No, this is Middle Eastern grief. This is weeping and wailing and shrieking. This is people who would have their clothes torn too, who'd have ashes all over them. This is real mourning. And at the front of that procession would be the widowed woman of Nain. Now, she had been in this place before. She has led this procession, the first time with her husband. And now she is doing it all over again mourning the loss of her one and only son. So she is weeping and wailing for her son. 
but she's probably also weeping and wailing for herself. Because in this culture, this Near Eastern culture, women couldn't work, they couldn't own land, they couldn't fend for themselves. And so now that she is a full widow with no one to look after her, she is now resigned to a life of wretched poverty. She is out on the streets, she is going to have to be homeless, and she is going to be subject to all of the oppression and injustices that poverty affords. Plus, she has to bear with all the shame of her condition, the shame of knowing that she will never have produced an heir, that, which is really important in that culture, to have her name perpetuated. She's going to have to bear the scorn of all of the people who pass her by each day, people whispering, why, why did God do that to her? Why would he punish this woman? What, what had she done? She's going to endure a life of poverty and loneliness and shame. Now, for a while, maybe she has this crowd around her, this considerable crowd that kind of comes out in droves to recognize the mourning of this woman. But we have to recognize that this crowd is going to dwindle slowly but surely until, at the end, she is going to be all alone. She is going to be a widowed woman with no one to protect or keep her. So that is this woman's situation. She cries for herself, and she cries for her son. Verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Now, first of all, notice that he calls Jesus Lord here. Now, that's interesting. He doesn't always call Jesus Lord. Sometimes he just uses the pronoun he. Sometimes he calls him Jesus. What's the significance of calling him Lord? We could say, well, well he's just recognizing that he's God. I think it's actually more than that. It's recognizing the disparity between these two people. That Jesus has power, he has authority, and this woman has nothing. She has lost everything. And Jesus could just walk by. He doesn't need to regard this woman. But I think he uses Lord for another reason, because the Lord is the name of our Father God. Lord God the Father in the Old Testament. And God the Father, his role he kind of presents himself as the God, especially to the weak, to the widows, to the orphans, to the foreigners. And so Jesus is showing his connection to his Father, that he is a Lord, and as the Lord, he is going to protect those who need protection. He's going to be the Lord over the weakest of the people. So he saw this woman, and he had compassion on her. Now, that's, that's an interesting word, actually, too. He had compassion is actually uh, a verb form of a noun. All right, get your grammar, grammar together. Uh, it's a verb of the noun intestines or guts or viscera. Now, it's, it's a verb form. So he's literally like gutted for this woman. He has a visceral reaction. He's like struck down to the core. Gut-wrenching sorrow for this woman. That is what he feels. He has real compassion. He can feel her pain as acutely as she does. And we wonder how, how he got to that point. Maybe he's imagining her past sorrow with her husband, losing him. Her present sorrow with her son. Maybe he's projecting himself forward and looking into to the life that she would experience in the future. 
and he is feeling the pain that she is experiencing. He can anticipate her poverty, her shame, her loneliness. And we wonder how Luke can get into Jesus' heart and into his mind like that. How does he know that Jesus feels this way? Maybe someone told him. He wasn't there, so he would have to have been told. But how would people have known this about Jesus? I wonder if it might have shown across his face that his, his eyebrows furrow, that his face kind of softens, that he, he kind of stoops down to this woman and can be with her in her pain. He feels the weight of it. I think we tend not to imagine Jesus like that. We imagine him kind of floating on a cloud, just kind of shooting miracles at people, kind of apathetic about everything that's going around. No, this is, this is a real Jesus with real emotions, interacting with real people. And we miss Jesus when we miss that. When we don't think of him as a real person, as we are. I think that is very much the point of the story here. That he's a real, compassionate person. That's actually a central part of his character. But we haven't actually said what compassion is. Compassion is suffering with people to enter into their suffering, to feel what they feel, to be with them relationally, emotionally, to be with them in their pain. And that is what Jesus does, which is actually really remarkable because God in his emotions is not like us. God doesn't just, uh, we kind of have natural reactions to things. We see something and we have an emotional response. God actually isn't like that. We talk about the impassibility of God. That means that God actually does not suffer things the way that we do. He actually is above those things in that he is God and he's not subject to certain emotions as we are. So when God actually feels things that we feel, it is because he is actively choosing to feel those things. He is entering in. He's not just watching and having all of these emotions. He is choosing to feel the emotions of his people. And he chooses to do that in Jesus Christ. He becomes this God-man who can say that he has experienced everything that humanity has experienced. He walks in our shoes. He does what we do. He feels what we feel. He suffers what we suffer. That is what Jesus Christ the compassionate Savior has done for us. So the question is, how do you interact with a Savior who is compassionate? How might that change how you think about God and how you relate to him? Well, let's think about things that you worry about, things that you're nervous about, maybe even doubts about God, things that you're just not sure about and that trouble you. Do you bring those things to God as your father, recognizing that he is compassionate, that he cares and he wants to be with you in those things. I think too often we can say, well, nah, God already knows all that stuff. He's way up there. He doesn't really care. And so we end up keeping that distance. Even because you know, he already knows. In community group a couple weeks ago, we talked about how as parents, Parents might see their kid walk over there and smack their head on the table. 
right? They see the whole story. They know what happened. But that doesn't mean that they want their kid to come to them to explain the story, that they hurt themselves, that they're, what happened? And the role as a parent is to offer comfort, to, to kiss their hurting head, to be with them in that. That is how they are fathers and mothers to their child. And yet we're kind of silly because when we smack our head on the table, we oftentimes just sit there on our own tears. We cry about it, but we don't go running to God as Father. We just try to deal with it on our own. Now, I know that I do that. I don't go running to God as soon as I have a problem. I think sometimes it's because the problems just seem kind of menial and dumb, that God doesn't really need to hear about it. Maybe I don't even need to worry about it. Sometimes the problem seems too big. I don't trust that God can actually do anything or that he would want to. Sometimes I'm angry that God let those things happen. So, of course, I don't want to go to him. All of those things are a reflection that we don't really understand the compassion of our God and our Father. That he really does care about us. That he wants to enter into those things. He's not high and above them, but in Jesus, he actually comes down and feels the things that we feel he suffers with us. That is a privilege that we have as Christians. A privilege to know our Father like that. And we should take advantage of it. Sometimes we can feel like Christianity is kind of a boring thing. That what it really is, the value of it. I think we're going to miss out on what Christianity really is when we don't have a relationship with our Father. That is one of the things that Jesus died to earn for us to reconcile us to relationship with this Father. And that is a blessing that we should take advantage of. All right, so that's the first thing, that we how we relate to this personal, compassionate Savior. I think as another emphasis of this passage, I think we see that God really does hear the tears of the parents weeping for their children. Now, I know that that is a specific concern for many of you. That you have endured the sorrows of seeing children suffering. Seeing children lost in sin. Maybe just lost in general. And this story proves that, that God hears the tears of the parents for their children. He really does. He, know, he knows the fact that, that you doubt him for the fact that he hasn't brought some of your children to faith. He knows those doubts that maybe, maybe I won't be happy in heaven if my children are not there. Or why, why has God just let them do the same mistake over and over and over and hasn't done anything about it? God is not apathetic to those things. God hears those things he cares about them. He is compassionate and knows those sorrows acutely. We are called to keep crying to him, keep praying to him, keep running to him. He really does care and he does listen. We don't want to neglect the blessing of our relationship with a father who really does care for us. We can neglect that. And I think God would plead that we would not. All right, so... 
That's how we react to this compassionate Savior. But how are we called to be compassionate ourselves? All right. I think we all know what a lack of compassion looks like. Have you ever told someone a story, talked about your suffering, and they immediately give you a bunch of advice that is pretty obvious and not very helpful? They give you some, some Bible verses that are kind of a little bit trite. Maybe they give you uh, some teaching or some rebuke. No, you just really shouldn't do that. Or they give you personal experience. Oh, yeah, I, I've been through that. Don't worry about it. It's fine. It's frustrating. We hate when people do that to us. It's like, well, you didn't, you didn't hear me. You didn't understand me. You give me solutions to the wrong problems. That's a lack of compassion. And we hate when people do that to us. But we often do that to other people. We go all the way too quickly to advice, to quick comfort, to, to solutions, to, oh, oh, I, I've done that. Here, here, here's my story. Suddenly they're off on their own story, not even talking about you anymore. Uh, the first thing that we owe people when they talk about their suffering is compassion. We owe that to them if, even if they are weak, if they are young, if we disagree with them. We owe that to them because that's what Christ has given to us. That is how Christ approaches us. He more, moves towards us and he, he is moved, gut-wrenchingly moved before he moves forward. All right, as, as one special application of this, I think we probably owe the most compassion to those with whom we disagree. All right. Uh, as Christians, probably people who are of other faiths, other beliefs, we're usually the most compassionless towards those people. They are lost, and yet we think things like, well, oh, evolutionists, they're just crazy. They have no idea what they're thinking. Or maybe we have the people who are the atheists. Now, they're just dumb. They, they just are intentionally neglecting God. And the reality is that these people have reasons for what they believe. They may be the wrong reasons. They may be misguided reasons. But they do have reasons. Are you able to enter into how they view their own worldview? Why they view things the way they do? When we go quickly to, to straw men and false kind of understanding of these people, we end up frustrating them. And we've proved that maybe we don't really, the gospel doesn't apply. Besides just saying, I disagree with you, you disagree with me. Now, they could do that to us. Let's take Christianity. We are a straw man of Christianity. Let's say that uh, a bunch of people in the desert, five, 6,000 years ago, invented a book for themselves. And we happen to follow it. But then we cut out some parts because 2,000 years ago, this carpenter came and died, and we think he's going to rise again. Now, that is not a very gracious depiction of Christianity. And yet, that is oftentimes how we describe our opponents, as if they're just utter fools. How could they believe these things? We owe them compassion. Compassion for their state as lost people. Because the hope is that we can actually give them real solutions to the problems and the things that they're, they're wrestling with. 
So we owe that to our opponents. We owe that to the lost. We also owe it to people who are suffering. We don't try to jump in really quickly and just try to solve all their problems. Right? People have been suffering for a long time, probably wrestled with the same things over and over. They've heard solutions. Our first step is to be compassionate, to be moved and then to move forward. It's going to make us tread those waters very differently. All right, but that, that's, that's the first step is compassion. But compassion is supposed to lead to actual action, to doing things. And that's how it works in this case as well. So let's look at verse 13. The second half, the first thing that Jesus does, he said to her, do not weep. Do not weep. Now, how do you think this woman reacted to that? She could have gotten angry. Like, how, how dare you tell me not to weep? My son is dead. Or maybe she's just bewildered. Like, what, what are you talking about? Uh, of course I'm weeping. What, what else would I do? And that's where it, Jesus is like this. Oftentimes he, he tells us to do things based solely upon trust in him, faith, and hope. This woman, she can't see why she shouldn't be weeping. She has no idea why she shouldn't be. And yet Jesus asks her to do it before he changes her circumstances. Before he makes things all better, he asks her to stop weeping. Now, of course, we know all too well that, that Jesus tells us to do the same. That before he changes things, he tells us to trust him. To look to him. To trust in his character, not just what he has already done. Now, I don't know if the, the widow stopped weeping or not. If she's like us, she probably didn't. She probably couldn't see Jesus and have that faith that, that is required. We know more of the story now, but we struggle with that same thing. All right. So he asks her to have faith in him before he acts, but then he does act. So let's look at verse 14. He came up and touched the beer, and the bearer stood still. Now, if you don't know what a beer is, that's, that's fine. I had to look at how to pronounce it, and I've been pronouncing it wrong for a week. Um, uh, this is basically like a gurney, like a thing you, you hold dead people on, like the four guys, kind of like pallbearers, um, a beer. Now, why does Jesus reach out and touch this thing? Maybe you think, well, oh, no, he had to do that to resurrect. You have to touch the person. No, other times he just, he just says it and it happens. We have to understand the Old Testament precedent for that. And in the Old Testament, they had purity laws. Purity laws, where it's kind of like cooties. So if you touch, if you touch things that are unclean, then like you get it on you, and you're unclean, and you're dirty before God and before people. All right, purity laws are supposed to protect you from the cooties, in a sense, a more more uh, holy sense. But uh, yeah, same same concept. And so one of the things you're not allowed to touch, especially, is anything having to do with death. Death is up there on the top of the list. Because otherwise you are associated with death and you have, you have death on you. So when Jesus touches that thing, he is defiling himself. He is touching death. He is getting death on him. And that's where we see the second aspect of Jesus' compassion. 
He's not just compassionate towards the widow's weeping. He's also compassionate towards this man in his death. He enters into death in a spiritual sense with this guy by touching it. Now that's just a small foretaste of the cross. Where Jesus enters into death because people are dying and people are dead. He has compassion towards us. He enters with us into our suffering. That is what he did on the cross. He saw people who are dying and he saw that, you know, if I'm going to change anything, I need to die as well. I need to be like these people and save these people. Jesus, in his compassion, he acts. He does something about it. And then verse 14, he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, before he did this miracle, you might think that Jesus, in his compassion, is just being emotional. Maybe even being weak, being too mushy. Maybe in, in telling the woman not to weep, he's just being insensitive, almost cruel to this woman. Maybe when he touches the dead, the dead, it's just kind of gross and weird. Why is he doing that? But when he resurrects this guy from the dead, all that stuff makes sense. That he is entering into death so that he can bring new life. When he tells this woman not to weep, it's because... He knows that she will not be weeping soon. He has actual power. And his compassion towards her is not just to be warm and fuzzy with her. It is to actually bring her out of the state that she is in. When he resurrects this guy from the dead, she, she saves this woman in a sense. She saves her out of her shame, out of her scorn, out of her mourning. And it's the same when, when Jesus Christ resurrects. When he dies on the cross and resurrects for us, he's doing that same thing. He is touching we who are dead and giving us new life. He doesn't get defiled. He doesn't stay dead. He raises from the dead, and everyone who touched him in his death is raised to new life. That is what Jesus did. And now we have new life. So we're no longer burdened by the sorrow and the shame, the scorn of our previous life. All the defilement of sin is taken away. We are no longer dirty, unclean people. We are people who, like Christ, are perfect and holy and pure. Now, what does that mean for you as you pursue Jesus? First of all, you have to enter with Jesus into his death. In our sin, we, we are dead. I think we don't like to think like that. That we like to think, well, no, we're just on a spiritual journey. We're finding ourselves. We're slowly pleasing God. No, we are as dead as that, that man is dead. And that if we are going to find life, Jesus needs to raise us up from the dead. We are not going to raise ourselves any more than this guy was going to raise himself up. We need to die with Jesus and be raised up with Jesus. Look to Jesus Christ for life. He's the only one who's going to give it to you. Second, 
We need to trust Jesus when he speaks. Before he does something. We trust him when he has words of comfort. When he tells us to obey him in certain ways and we don't understand. Jesus Christ has resurrection power. When he comes again, he will do things that we can neither ask for nor imagine. Amazing things that will justify why we obeyed. Justify why we believed. Why we took him at his word. We won't look back and wonder, well, he didn't do everything he said he would. No, he will act. This is a man who has power over death and life. He can help you in your problems. He can help you in the big problems, the small problems, the ultimate problems. Now, what am I, what am I not saying? Am I saying that God is going to solve all your problems as you want him to? Unfortunately not. No at all. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> right, that's right, Bob. Bob Tracy said no. No. Uh, is he going to bring life and holiness and goodness out of everything in a way that you could never imagine? Yes. That is what he's going to do. It's going to be bigger and it's going to be better, but it is going to be different than we expect. Now, is he going to do it on the, on the timeline that we expect? Where he says, do not weep, and then 30 seconds later, he, he heals everything, takes care of it. No, he does not going to do that either, most likely. But we look to the long term. That he will make good on his promises. He will come as our resurrected king, and he will make things right. That is what we're looking to. That's why we believe him at his word, to do not weep now. So Jesus, in his compassion, is compassionate towards our sorrows, and then he's compassionate towards the fact that we are dead and suffering under sin. Now, in light of that compassion, how do the people respond? Verse 16. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. What do they take from this story? They recognize that God is real. And that God cares. That God came down and visited his people in Jesus Christ. They recognize that God, in his character, is compassionate. Is compassionate and powerful and active in the lives of his people. And when they realize that, when they see firsthand that that is true, they can't help but tell people about it. They go out into the streets, they go out into the surrounding country and tell people of who God really is in Jesus Christ. They worship him. They obey him. They tell of him. That is when you fully understood the compassion of Christ. When you go out and are eager to tell people about it. Now, we are called to do that as well. Corinthians talks about how the comfort that we have received, we give to others. We're to go out and tell people of the compassion of Jesus Christ. Now, that is a good message, right? We don't come out with a message of simply judgment or just simply obedience. No, we start with compassion and we start with the compassion of God, that he has met us. 
that he has met us in our death and in our sin, and he longs to help us and to save us. That is a good message, and that is a message we bring to the world. And in that, we worship our God. We worship the God who is compassionate in Jesus Christ, who loves us and cares for us. Now, if that is the nature of our God, then it is a privilege to obey him and to seek him, to worship him and honor him, because he is good towards us. Jesus proves that God, God is a God of compassion. And we are to go, him, go to him as our compassionate father.